So we come to this sermon. I've entitled it, Worship Christ the King, or Worship the King of Kings. Take your pick. There are those who are not interested in celebrating Jesus' birth and claim that it is a pagan practice. But it's in the Bible, such as in our passage, verse 2. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? The birth of Christ is a historical fact of redemptive history. When God entered into the world, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1 14. The church celebrated early on, at first quietly and later more openly the birthdays of kings and presidents, which are commemorated even in our land. Only in the case of the church and its king, King Jesus, in a special way, when he is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.15 While the world is endeavoring to de-Christianize Christmas and turn it into a pagan winter festival like what has been done with that celebration in Balboa Park. And the churches also don't observe it at all, I'm speaking of. It is nonetheless a birth our king. That babe in the manger is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he is not the script of any of his offices as our mediator, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is today shaking the ungodly powers that be so that only his kingdom will remain in the end. Nevertheless, when God the Son enters the scene or entered the scene of time, seemingly no one was seeking him. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But thanks be to God that it doesn't stop there. For it goes on to say in John 1, that as many as receive him, to them that gave him power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As we know, when the Lord came on the scene of time, that it was not entirely true that no one saw him, as we know. There was the prophet Simeon, and there was the prophetess Anna, and there were others. As our Lord would declare later in his earthly ministry, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last time. This is called irresistible grace. Who would the Father draw to his son? From our passage, I'm speaking. First, the most unlikely people. I like illustrations. You've probably seen this before. 
I've used this in the past. Some say they are kings, but our passage calls them wise men. Verse 1. Behold, there came wise men. Also known as mad magi. If you add a C at the end of that, you have what? Magic. That's what they were about. And you know what that's about, right? They practice things like divination, seeking the future, wanting to know the unknown through such things as astrology and sorcery and the like. They studied in regards to astrology, the movements and the relative positions of the celestial bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars. Somehow they have, that is, those celestial bodies out there have an influence on the natural world and on human affairs and on minds of people. The Bible forbids it. Deuteronomy 4, 19 tells us, unless thou lift up thine eyes into heaven, and when thou seest the sun, and the moon, and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldst be driven to worship them, and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. In other words, it's a warning. It's a prohibition. But the Lord doesn't only work in the most unlikely people. He works from the most unlikely place from the east. They were from, that is, those wise men, the royal courts of the king of Persia, who, by the way, called himself the king of kings. Kings often sent congratulations to other new rulers of other realms, and perhaps that might explain the mission purpose of these three wise men as sent by the king. But beneath it, there was a way for the king to know his competition so that he could take him out. And we know that from Herod. Herod himself wanted to know for that express purpose, did he not? And also the most unlikely religious backgrounds. Verse 2, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. In the east, we're all... There are all these mythological religions. And they have come to worship another God. Somewhat like those in the book of Acts, chapter 70, 23 through 25, which I'll read to you. Those described by the Apostle Paul as what? The unknown God. They wanted to make sure that they had all the gods covered, so they had one stall with idols, emblems of deity that represented etc, etc. Meaning they wanted to cover all the bases. Isn't that how uh, polytheism works? And so in uh, Acts chapter 17 verse 23 and 24 and 25 For as I passed by I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. In other words, he's going to tell them about the true living God. God 
God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything. See, he giveth all life and breath and all things. As it turns out, the wise men had another ulterior reason for their going on this trip. Unbeknownst to the Persian king, their king, what they had. Apparently, the Holy Spirit was drawing them to Jesus. I'll leave it at that at this point. We'll go on to the next thing. The most unlikely heathen king to take an interest in the God of the Bible. And who's that but Herod? Herod the king had heard these things. He was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. So the subject matter was Messiah. The subject matter was their very anointed king who was to come from glory, otherwise known as the Christ, son of the living God. That was the subject of discussion. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, in other words, that is where he will be born, according to the scriptures. What a terrible, wicked man he was. Here came to power at a young age as a client king of Caesar Augustus. In other words, he was put there as like one of Caesar's puppets to rule over this land that had been taken over by the Roman Empire. His reign was characterized by great building projects like the coastal city of Caesarea, dedicated to who else but to the emperor. And the great temple in Jerusalem he was responsible for, probably the third temple. He wanted to hold on to power, and to do that, he killed 45 noble families in Jerusalem who challenged him. You know the Jews, they're, they're apt to challenge anyone, as we know. That's their propensity as a nation. He drowns his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, in a bath, accusing him of treason. He kills his uncle Joseph, after suspecting him of an affair with one of his wives, he slaughtered several of his own sons who were suspected of plotting against his throne. Nevertheless, Herod, for the most unscrupulous reason, seeks his own wise men as to what the scriptures teach. Isn't that an anomaly? Herod is the most unlikely to be trusted. Verse 7 and 8, And Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, meaning the wise men from the east, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. He's trying to connect the dots here, using providence and now scripture. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search diligently for the young child. I'm pointing you in the direction that my wise men have counsel me as to where we may find him. And when you have found him, bring me word of him, that 
I may come and worship him also. Ha! Huh. It was not for that reason whatsoever, was it, that I may come and worship him also. And the wise men did not touch bases with Herod by swinging back on the return trip home. Herod tried to eliminate the Christ, which was his plan all along. Matthew 2.16, we read, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and all the coast thereof for the, from, the, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Christ was born in the most unlikely hamlets of Judea. There were thousands of them. Little, I wouldn't call them townships or even villages. They were smaller than that. As it says in our passage, for it was written by the prophets. Or I should say, for it was written by the prophet. Micah. And now Bethlehem and the land of Judah are now not least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come forth a governor and shall rule my people Israel. Our Aikman wrote, So little was Bethlehem Ephrathah. This is the one where our Lord was born, Bethlehem Ephrathah. And it did not seem destined to any more commanding place in history when in later times a plain-looking couple drew near the village a young wife and her husband, traveling on foot because very poor, although both in the lineage of David. For not only was Bethlehem little, but the exceeding low condition to which the family of the great king, named David's family, had sunk appears from the fact that Joseph and Mary, who could trace their pedigree up to David through a long line of kings, were thus poor and received no sort of recognition in the crowded village. A most unlikely astronomical phenomenon, verse 9. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. It's almost as if God was catering to their astrological fantasies. That's what I would like to call them. By this star in the east. But remember, who created the stars. And cannot God use them, and in this case, it, as he pleases, even to lead his elect to the Savior? Of course. As David declares, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the sun, the moon, and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him, thou hast made him in his son lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Not only did he make that star, but he visited mankind, and then he permitted 
pagans to be his first worshippers and shepherds. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Which leads me to a most unlikely place to find a king. Verse 11. And when they were come to the house, apparently they had transferred from the stable to now uh, a house, a domicile. I assume. I assume. Because this is later after his birth, of course, in the stable. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Imagine that. As soon as they saw the Christ child, they were on their knees praising the name of the Lord. M. Faber tells us five things. One, Jesus was born a helpless, unknowing baby, unable to do anything, as is the case of any newborn. Later, he was mocked in the hour of his passion as being weak and foolish, as one not unable to reply to Herod and also to Pilate. It says in the scriptures in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. He didn't speak or defend himself. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is done, so he opened not his mouth. The burden of our nature was laid upon him all throughout his earthly life, as we would note in the Gospels, which was one long course of sacrifice for others. The weak and suffering are often the workers of the world, beginning with our Lord, even to those who would serve Christ. His church and the fields that are wide of the harvest. Jesus was born, secondly, without a dwelling. No room for him in the inn, right? Do you recall? Whilst living, no home for him in Jerusalem or elsewhere. In Matthew 8, 20, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He didn't even have a hotel room. He was, a, for all intents and purposes, a homeless person, being part of his broken ministry. In death, he had no tomb or sepulcher of his own, the author continues. Jesus came to do a mighty work for the world, and yet had no lot or portion yet. Thirdly, Jesus was born in darkness, just after midnight, and he died in darkness. And darkness came over the whole land. This was just after midday. The light of the world came in at dark, to make it bright with his presence. Fourth, but Jesus was born on a hard couch, that is a place where you lay down and rest. Born in a stable, laid in a manger, he died extended in repose upon the very couch of the cross. And then lastly, Jesus was born between two animals. The ox and the ass were with him at his birth. He was compelled to breathe out his soul between two thieves, and during his life, he received sinners. Tonight, and lastly, the most unlikely gifts to give to the King of Kings. In verse 11 of our passage in Matthew chapter 2, And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, 
I'm sure you have often wondered what this, what these represented, what these were, and what they represent. They were expensive gifts to give to a king. Like what was accoladed upon Christ by the woman who took that nard and an expensive ointment washed or wiped Jesus' feet, as well as to wash his feet with her tears. And so, while they were expensive gifts, this was not so much in terms of their nature and purpose. Now, true, gold is a symbol of divinity. In fact, our Lord, as I said, is none other than the living word that existed in all of eternity, whose goings forth have been from everlasting, as is noted by the prophet. He is the one whom the hymn writer describes as veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed incarnate deity, pleases man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Frank, uh, frankincense. Frankincense is this white resin or blue, which is highly fragrant when burned as an offering, such as in the temple or in the tabernacle to God. This is a gift that symbolizes Christ's willingness to be sacrificed for his Father. As is noted in Hebrews 10, 7 and 10. Then said I, quoting our Lord Jesus' words, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Lastly, myrrh. Myrrh is a spice of Arabia, also from a tree like frankincense that is used embalming. Of course we know that he would be buried and after three days would rise again. It was also something mingled with wine that is with a stupefying effect to numb pain, such as what was offered to him when he was on the cross. It says in Mark 15, 23, and they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. It is also called gall in Matthew 27, 34. That reads, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall or myrrh. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink it. Myrrh symbolizes suffering, pain, anguish, affliction. Like our Heidelberg Catechism question, 37 asks, what dost thou understand by the word suffered? And the answer, that all the time he, meaning Jesus, Emmanuel, Christ, lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race, in order that by his passion, as the only atoning sacrifice, there is none other, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation, and obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. The bitterness of soul, if you recall when he was on the cross, he cries out at the ninth hour, 
a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is as that sin offering of the two goats. I like to use this illustration because it, it brings up two aspects of his suffering. One is the, the one goat that is slaughtered and his blood is sprinkled on the altar. And the other goat is sent out in the wilderness to fend for itself and eventually to die in exile. Our Lord was exiled, not only from this world, but from his Father. He was exiled to suffer the hell that we deserve in his sufferings and his ordeal on those hours in the cross and later three days in the grave. In conclusion, see how the Lord works in the most unlikely people. And he continues to work in the most unlikely people. And when you think what he has done in working our lives, we can only thank him and praise him. We didn't have him work at all. Have you been drawn to King Jesus? As I said earlier, must draw you. Like the shepherds whom he drew. Like the three wise men or three kings whom he drew. Or like the harlots and publicans that he would later draw to himself. And why? Because of what he and he alone has to offer. And that is forgiveness of sins. Acceptance with God and eternal life. Adoption as children of Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. That is the response of all who have been transformed by Christ. <coughs> One of the hymns called, uh, didn't get this in time to our pianist, but I'll read it to you. I won't say it. Angels from the realms of glory, the third stanza. Sages, wise men, leave your contemplations. Brighter visions beam afar. Seek the great desire of nations. You have seen his natal star. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. And yes, we worship him as is, wherever he is, that we are focusing on in redemptive history. But finally, yes, as someone who is in glory at the right hand of the Father. Sure, they worshiped him in their ignorance and superstition, but they worshiped him. Did they not? The one who is alone to be worshiped, is he not? There are people all around us who won't come to church. But the pagan Magi astrologers make an extended road trip just to worship Jesus Christ. And then they do what? They present them with expensive gifts to show their love. That's not so much the cost. It's the heart that is behind it. That is what the Lord is after. A son even that heart, that that eyes of super How about you?
One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What do I take away from this lesson of the past? I'll single it to one thing. And that's this. Worship Jesus. Worship Christ. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we are thankful for this story of the wise men who came from the east, guided by your star, guided by your Holy Spirit to your Son. Did you not later say that you would send the Holy Spirit and that in your sending him and the Son sending him, that he would lead us into all truth, that he would not speak of himself, but that which he hears, he would speak, and that is, of course, the words of our Lord that point us to him through the gospel salvation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for doing this. Lord, do this more. But especially, Lord, work in us to continue to live our lives to your glory as you truly are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb once slain. And all this we pray to your glory. In your holy name.